0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles.
1: We're actually looking at the ways in which, at least in the, in the rabbinic mind, and the Talmudic mind, the connections between these two sort of life cycle moments go beyond just, you know, the fact that they both have the number seven in them. Um, in fact, in the Talmud, there's a whole conversation about um, the, the seven days of blessing, you know, they said, um, you know, you, you need a minion for the Birkat Hatanim, the, the Shavah Brachot, um, you know, for each of the seven days after the wedding. And similarly, you need a minion for Birkat Avelim, the blessing of the mourners, which is not the mourner's Kaddish. Um, and so the rabbis and the talmud sort of say, like, what is this, Birkat Avelim that we're talking about and the idea of for seven days we have we say this blessing and it goes through this ritual which we sort of lost over time Um, but it's actually, I mean, and maybe we can think about some of the reasons why Um, but it was actually kind of a beautiful ritual. Um, It brings the story of of Rish Lakish, the great rabbi, going to, uh, I guess, a friend of his, someone who taught his
2: His children. His son's teacher. His
1: son's teacher. He goes to his son's teacher's house on the second day after the after the funeral because, right, same idea with Sheva brachot. You need the panim chadashot. You need the new faces in order to say the blessings. There's a similar idea, I guess, with shiva that they would only say this if there were new people in the house. And he started reciting this this set of blessings that were kind of parallel to the Sheva Brachot, but they were all about mourning, you know, instead of being about celebration and unification of a husband and wife, it was all about God who comforts the mourners and revives the dead and, you know, takes care of, uh, you know, similar things, takes takes care of the community's needs and so forth. Um, And I think it's actually sort of this beautiful parallelism that exists in Jewish tradition in which we see in these episodes, right? We're sort of simultaneously dealing in in grief and in joy, in Minyan, sorry, in in Shiva and in Sheva Brahot. Um, And that started last episode and continued in this episode. But I think even in the Jewish tradition, it's stronger than that. There's really this like, they're almost, you know, mirror images of one another, these two processes of in the same way that there's sort of at a funeral is this like incredibly sad experience and then there's a transition gradually from you know the the incredible sadness of the funeral to the shiva which is still very sad but you know you're beginning to sort of get accustomed to this new way of living you know then into the into the shloshim and then into the full year there's actually the same thing when it comes to, to weddings, that there's sort of this, the wedding, there's the celebration. And then there's the, the Sheva bracha the seven days of, of feasting, as it were, and kind of getting used to this new way of living. Um, and then into, uh, you know, into the, the whole first year has it sort of its own special significance. Um, so I think the episode is sort of playing on that in a really interesting, interesting way um, that, you know, sort of touching on this Talmudic connection between. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about is the way like why it is that we've changed the the nature of Shiva so much. And I think we'll we'll mostly be talking about Shiva today, though if people want to talk about Shiva, we can as well. Um, but when we were reading the stories earlier of Rish Lakish going to this person's house and saying all these blessings, saying like, I can't imagine someone's like making someone making a more recite all of these blessings of gratitude for God, who, you know, comforts the mourners and so forth, especially in this case with uh, someone who had lost a child. It was like, you know, like saying Baruch Dayan HaMet, like blesses the true judge is hard enough for people. Um, And you know, as much as we've sort of held onto those rituals as described and those blessings as described for the wedding and thinking about the ways that God is really present in that experience, um, we've like kind of removed the theodicy piece when it comes to death in certain ways that like they do have blessing God we're supposed to bless God for the good and for the bad but it's much harder to bless God for the bad Um, and I think that, you know, might play into why Shiva just becomes such an awkward experience and like, what do you say, which is so much of a topic on this episode. And you want to add to that?
2: I just feel like we all have to like take a deep breath. That was such a deep soliloquy you just said. Um, long <laughs> <Absolutely>. uh, I, <laughs> um, I think that when it, like based on this episode, the the way that Rai Parnik and I got to this topic was because one of the main moment that that kind of starts off the episode and then comes back at the end of the episode is in this time of real joy are we even allowed to go to our very good friend's home for shiva and I thought I knew the answer and I was glad that I was right at the end of the episode it's always good when you know actors who know nothing about halacha can verify the halacha that you learned in rabbinical school um and uh and it's it is an interesting thing to think about that if you're in your own week of Sheva Brachot, and I just want to make sure that this is clear because I'm not sure that it is for everybody. Sheva Brachon are not just what you say under the Chuppah, um, with usually beautiful singing and, and, um, sometimes even people, I was talking about this to the other Rabbi Pernick, uh that sometimes even other people will bring up, you know, beautiful interpretations or translations or whatever as a way of giving an honor to the couple. Um, But there's also this week that follows the wedding, that follows the chuppah, called Sheva Brachot, and you're supposed to have new people come, and usually there's a way of coordinating so that you do have new people in your home every week, uh, every day, sorry, uh, throughout the week, and you say the Sheva Brachot at the end, just like you would at the end of um, the Suda Mitzvah of a wedding. So anyway, all of that being said, it's interesting that instead of having people over to their home that evening... They go to a Shiva home, right? That, that there's really a, a very, a very distinct difference there of what they should be doing versus what they end up doing. Um, and so I, I agree with like the, the weightiness of imagining that as a moment in your life, but also being able to just think about how we show up for people, even if it's not, even if it's not the way that we expect to be behaving after our wedding, that if something were to be bothering or occurring in our friends' lives, um, that hopefully we would try to show up for them and and be there in a way that would be uh, supportive of them and put our own piece aside. The only thing I was going to mention about um, the God piece, which, <laughs> which was much deeper than I had originally thought about this topic um is that for, for people, sometimes Kaddish is also difficult, right? Because Kaddish are these words that are, that have nothing to do with mourning and nothing to do with the grief you're feeling and the anger you might feel towards God. And all of a sudden you're saying, wow, God, you are so great. Thank you so much. I actually, as a practice, try to not say Baruch Dayan Ahmet because I, it is a hard thing to hear and it is a hard thing to say, um, and I think that that is brought up a little bit in this episode as well with the longer sentence of Hamakom uh, and just the ways in which we try to choreograph moments of grief uh, to make it easier on the mourner, but also, as Rabbi Pranik was just saying, like less awkward for the person who's supposed to be giving that comfort and support. Um, so those are the three things I want to add. Anyone have any thoughts about those moments in the, yeah, Rebecca or Leonard? Um,
0: yeah, I have kind of the the flip side, uh, a pseudo hypothetical question. Um, <laughs> um, my cousin was getting married in Minneapolis and we came for the wedding and I was supposed to recite one of the Sheva Brachot at the wedding ceremony. And my mother passed away the day before. So instead of going to the wedding on Sunday morning, we got on a flight from Minneapolis back to L.A. Um, because my mother had passed away. So I didn't end up going to the wedding. But would it have been appropriate for me to go to the wedding, not the reception, but the wedding, let alone say a Sheva Brachot? I mean, I wasn't quite in mourning yet,
2: right? My mother hadn't been buried. But I just want,
0: I just wonder about that sometimes.
2: I don't remember reading about Sheverbrahut as one of the categories of things that falls in like that period of Aninut to write like you haven't yet buried the person yet. So you're not yet a mourner of I Meirad mean, Parnik remembers. I don't believe that Brahud is one of those categories. Um, do you know? Yeah.
1: Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to see, see you okay. answer. Well, so actually it's interesting. One of the, so what you did is the correct thing to do in that case. Um, You know, the idea is that once, you know, if a parent passes away, sort of like we're seeing with Nachi, Nati's trying to like, in the last episode, avoid the situation because he's just like, if I don't, you know, if I turn my phone off and don't hear anything about my mom, I could take part in the simcha and just like, you know, and eventually it becomes impossible. Um was actually, the, well, so the Talmud talks about um what happens in a case where someone you know there's a, a one of the members of the couple loses their parent the day of uh the day of the wedding um so it says you know in the case where like everything is all prepared everything is all ready and and then one of the parents of one of the you know the members of the couple passes away what do they do and it says there and it's actually I mean it's an interesting idea and I, I guess kind of what makes the most sense. Um it says you know they actually they re- remove the the person oh, away, they remove the body to somewhere else. They do the wedding, they do yichud and then they actually do the 7 days of of this, of sheva brachot and then immediately following the, the 7 days with sheva brachot they sit shiva. But during that period they're not together at night. The couple isn't it. Um, they sleep separately. And that was actually it's the same part of the Talmud that we that talked lot you know, we spoke last week about chupat Nida, what happens when one when, when the bride is in Nida. And it's actually the same that's that conversation from last week was a sort of addendum to this conversation about um what happens if one of them is in mourning. Um, so yeah, so I mean for one of, you know, if, it's one of the members of the couple who loses a parent, then it's a much more complicated thing because you actually are sort of like involved in this, in, you know, in the wedding. Um, if you're someone who's reciting a blessing or you're an aide or a witness or something like that, I think what you did is the correct thing to do. Just, you know, something where, where if you're, if you're the bride, you can't replace yourself. Um, But if you're another role in the wedding, you can find replacements. And I think, you know, that's the the appropriate thing to do. Um
2: but I don't think just to go back to my response. So to I don't think that there's anything that says you cannot do sheva bracha, right, which is what I was trying to get at that I I don't Rai Karnik is is right. Like your reaction to the moment was the right thing to do because it was the right thing for you, right? Like that's that's also the most important part is doesn't matter what it says in halacha. that was the right thing for you to do and so you went. Um but I but I don't believe that there is there are categories of things that you are not supposed to do or you are supposed to do in that kind of limbo period between person dying and person being buried. And I don't believe that Shevra Brachot is mentioned as one of those things. And so you you would make that judgment call based on how you felt about being there, knowing that your mother had passed and and not, you know, having yet buried her, but making sure that you could get everything you needed together and and all of that before before that happened.
1: But, I mean, you don't recite blessings during when you're in Aniniut, so I know. But,
2: that, but that's what I was saying. Like, I don't know that that the Sheva Brachot, because if she blessing. wasn't, no, I know it's a blessing, but is it? It is it in that same kind of category of blessing? It's not a blessing that you would be saying. It's not like you're saying
1: on behalf of the community and not for yourself.
2: Right, exactly. Exactly.
1: I, saw, yeah, I, don't, I, still, I don't know okay I see a couple hands so I think Denise's hand was up first so maybe Denise and then Renee
0: so um so my father passed away on Hanukkah but it was also Christmas Eve so I ended up being like in that in-between zone for several days because then it was like Christmas Eve then it was Christmas then it was Shabbat and it was December and it was whatever so there was like several days. So I got to really know those rules about the in-between zone. Um And it was like, and so I w- we weren't supposed to do any positive mitzvahs is what they told me. So like I couldn't like the Hanukkah candles. I couldn't say hello when it was Rosh Chodesh. Couldn't say any blessings over food. Um And it was kind of neat actually, because it made me like, it made me feel very close to God because I was aware of being so thankful all over the place and not being able to say anything. Mm-hmm. And if I was able to just, you know, say a bracha and keep going, I wouldn't have noticed at all. So so it was kind of an interesting experience.
1: It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was looking, I, you know, we have a, a WhatsApp group for uh, questions to my Rosh Shiva, the head of rabbinical school. And someone just asked one the other day, um, talking about, you know, someone whose family member is getting buried in a military cemetery. And, you know, they passed away two days ago and the funeral is scheduled for like three weeks from now. Um, And and that was the question is like, what do you do with Uninute? Like, are they just an onen for like weeks? And they said, there's no way of changing it. That's like the way they schedule these at the military cemeteries. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that comes oh, up and, you you know, usually it's not for, for so long, but, uh, you know, I think the way you are describing feeling it is a really interesting thing that you, you know, actually provided a, you know, avenue for connection.
2: Yeah. With COVID, I don't know about in Louisiana, but in California, um, it's the way that a lot of burials are happening here too, that people can wait uh, up to three weeks to be their um, loved one buried. The the Jewish cemeteries are a little bit more careful in terms of trying to get it earlier than that, but I know people who have been buried two weeks after they have died. And that's really it's a really hard period of time, but as you're saying, you know, knowing what it is that you can also let go of during that time is at time it is comforting, right? It's mm-hmm. is helpful. Um, okay, Renee and someone else I think had their hand up, but Renee.
3: So I was wondering if it, if what you were saying in terms of them, whether the chassonkala going to the shiva, if it could have been, if it's if it's a situation like where, um, you know, like when people have to go to a simcha and it's during like shloshim or even during the year that there are arrangements that are made where they work at the simcha as opposed to, so they're not coming out as an actual guest, but they do work. So if they had gone to the shiva and, Let's say prepared a meal or served them a meal while they were there at the shiva. Would that have been um, more acceptable, or did it? Does it not? Or what is what they did okay anyway?
2: What they did is okay anyway, but it's an interesting question. I don't know if it goes that uh, like you're talking about the opposite suit situation, right? Where like Nati was then going, like the the mourner is doing something joyous rather than the mm-hmm. opposite. Right, 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 right. go into something sad. Um, I don't have to think about that. I mean, they did, what they did was fine, but I would have to I would have to think about if it would could also go the reverse.
1: That someone who right, celebrating shouldn't go to a shiva.
3: Yeah, where they were supposed to be, like you said, in the week of shabbat brachot and and doing something happy, and they obviously couldn't or chose not to because they wanted to support their friend. Also,
2: right. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I also I loved the idea that the episode was called Panim Chadashot, which means new faces, which in the Gemara that Rai Pernick was referring to, which I know not everybody learned with him, um, they talk about Panim Chadashot both for Shiva and for uh, uh, Shevardhoth. It's like Shloshim. Wow. SH's, it's really very difficult. Um, and and it's interesting that those new faces are used for different types of moments in both places, right? That you need to have that community around you. You can't have your same cadre of friends show up for you every single night. You need to have other people take responsibility of showing you that support and showing you that comfort in both Ways, right, both for the very happy, joyous moments and also for the moments that are that are harder to be present for.
1: Norm. Just one quick point, One quick point before we get to Norm. So I, I just looked at the uh, that, you know, the WhatsApp thing about the onion nude. And there was like actually a lot of comments on it because everyone's dealing with it. Um, and they basically said that, you know, the are said there you know, there is a middle state where if you've already done everything you can do for the funeral, then you're not an onan anymore you sort of leave the status of aninut. Um, but you're also you haven't begun Ave You don't begin mourning until the funeral. So there's sort of this limbo state where you can say blessings, you can Davin, you can't sit Shiva. So it's like that yeah, it's like really complicated okay,
2: You go back to your normal human state rather than being an Onan or being a You're
1: mortal. just in this weird middle, yeah, like regular human state because you're not an Onan and you're not an Avil. So it's like yeah. Like, um okay,
4: Norm. Um I had two questions. One is you said something about there there would be a period when they wouldn't be sleeping together, and it seems to me that during the shadowbrachas period, if at least if the bride was a virgin, she then would be they would then not be sleeping together for the whole week, which is part of the reason that there is shadowbrach. They do celebrating every night instead of um so
5: instead of okay? yeah. because she, she would have Lead. I've got to be Presumably.
1: So, so here's the this is the Gemara in Ketubot. Um, it says, right, if one's bread was baked and his animal slaughtered and his wine diluted and he placed water on the meat, meat and he's done all of the preparations for the wedding, and the father of the groom or the mother of the bride died, one moves the corpse into a room and the bride and groom are ushered to the wedding canopy to the chuppah and they're married. The groom then engages in uh, intercourse with the bride to fulfill the mitzvah. And he then withdraws from his wife's wife and the corpse is buried. And they then observe the seven days of the wedding feast and thereafter observe seven days of mourning. And throughout those days of feast and mourning, the groom sleeps among the men and the wife sleeps among the women. And they're not permitted to be together, alone together. And then it continues by talking about the Chupatni. So... It's, you know, there, so it's different because in this case, they actually have consummated the the marriage. Whereas in the case we talked about last week, they haven't consummated here. They have consummated the marriage. And we were talking a little bit earlier about why is it that they, you know, with a regular couple who has been married for years and one of them loses a parent, there's no issue. They're not supposed to sleep together, but they're not forbidden from like being in the same place. Um, But in this case for that first week, They're told to sleep separately. And I think it actually might be something about sort of the simcha, the joy is also obviously the newness and the excitement around the wedding and so forth that like we say sort of you should sleep in different places after that first night so that you're not tempted to to have sex again because you're like pseudo in mourning, even though you're also in celebration.
0: But they did not
5: consummate their marriage.
2: Right. Cause they were a Hupat Nida case, right? So the reason that this comes up is because it then goes straight into, in this same part of the Gemara, it goes straight into the case that we talked about last week, which is, and here's another reason that you wouldn't sleep with your, you know, person, um, after, after the wedding. So they're using this as a way into that.
5: Piece. Right. But it kind of normalizes
2: their situation because if they had yeah. committed the marriage, they wouldn't be touching each other anyways. Right. Where no one thank God died on their sides, right, so what it's we're dealing we're dealing with a lot of different things that really nicely came together for, I'm sure that the writers of Srugim knew
1: just saw they, the Suya and they're like, we're just taking the Sugi <laughs> and we're <they're> making it
2: like <laughs> yeah, together in two different episodes um but earlier, I was talking to Ravi Pernick about how i I thought that it would be. Bizarre to not allow the bride and groom to be together, um, to be able to con to be able to sleep together throughout that week, even if because if they've already been allowed to consummate the marriage, we know that it's not because of Nida that they can't be together for the rest of the week. And so, do you want to say something?
4: It, I think it is, it's because at least in in a first marriage, if the bride is a virgin and she bleeds, she's then forbidden to him for the next period of time. yeah. Right. When I first learned about it, that was given as the reason for having shadow breath because it gave them something to do every night. (laughs) Interesting.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah.
2: My theory. But I but I think that there's there's something about not being able to be with a person who would potentially bring you comfort. And when I think about it more, if you think back in these times of the Gemara, where they would have met their betrothed, you know, a week or two or three before they got married and they don't actually know the person. They, this actually might be a way in which they can return to their family's home to find comfort with the people who they actually know. Because if they're being told to stay with their husband or wife, then they're, and they're not allowed to touch, right? That's, that, there's something there that is less comforting during a time that your parent, died than if you were allowed to go back to your childhood home and be with siblings and aunts and uncles and, and the other parent ostensibly in this case. So I'm less concerned about the Nita thing and and more concerned about the idea that, that this might've actually been a way for someone to find comfort in a moment where it would have been again, awkward and unknown how to find that comfort.
1: Potentially. Robert, I'm going to have Robert. uh, He's had his hand up. Okay.
6: Well, stepping away from the religious, um, Mm-hmm. implications, et cetera. Um, y- the title of the episode, Panim Khadosh, mm-hmm. Um Yeah. Uh, so it, actually there's several new faces on the characters. The only one that doesn't change, does, is mixed up is Nazi because he's <laughs> old. He mixed up. <laughs> However, you have um, uh, Ruth coming back from India and everybody expects her to have a new face and she's, yeah. That she doesn't um and and then you have your fought and um uh the, the her partner or um anyway there, yeah. they they have new faces since they're newly married and they don't know how to uh face each other that well, you know they're trying mm-hmm. to figure out some of the interaction um, yeah. and uh who um yeah, and then you have um uh the the non, the newly non religious one with her new face and people just yeah. know so the, the title of the episode i think has a lot to do with uh the stage in the character's development in in the yeah stage.
1: Yeah. You're right. There's a lot of sort of new faces in that way, yeah. But mm-hmm. but you're right. It's an interesting point that Reut is the one who everyone's like, Oh, what's new? And
6: she's like, No, I didn't even really yeah. it. <laughs> like it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's not so hot, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's right. hot but it's not you know That
2: that also brings up and this is not what Robert was just talking about, but I'm gonna just use it as a segue. Um that brings up an interesting moment in the episode also where when you're sitting shiva you're not supposed to be the one who initiate who sorry you are supposed to be the one who initiates conversation you're not supposed to assume that someone else is going to approach you and ask you how you're doing right the halakha is actually and this is one of the more awkward things that people don't do well but maybe sometimes should do better um which is be quiet until the mourner speaks to you and and when rayut goes out to the brother who we all like, um whatever his name is, um guess we don't like him that much. Uh anyway, th- she goes out and that it's she's really able to have the first real conversation, and yet in doing that, she's she's kind of going beyond the bounds of what you're supposed to do in a Shiva home. Roe, thank you. Ah, very good. Um so I thought that was very interesting also and in how the show plays out those pieces of halakha, which she shouldn't have started the conversation. Sorry. Yeah, she shouldn't. I keep, I keep forgetting who's the mourner um, in terms of like allowing him the space to, to bring up wanting to know about her trip or whatever. And she's the one who opens it up. Uh, and we see how that continues to play out in the episode. Um, Rebecca or Leonard, that box.
5: Hi. Um, I, I don't know. Now that we've transitioned, uh, I don't know. I, I still had to comment on what we were talking about before. Okay. That was my bad. No bad. I'm Lani Newt. Um, My mother passed away uh, on the third day of Sukkot. And so she was buried during Sukkot, but I was told the mourning period didn't start until after Simcha's Torah. And to me, it felt like the rabbis just got it wrong completely. That here I'm supposed to be joyous with the Torah on Simplon's Torah, and then I can start mourning the next day.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's similar to what we're talking about with this idea of, you know, in that case where someone's parent dies the day of the wedding, you know, get married, have Sheva Brachot, and then mourn. Like, what happens during those seven days of quote unquote celebration? Like, that's just a weird time. And, like, yes, theoretically, you're supposed to be happy. It's a you know Sukkot is man Simchateinu where it's the time of our happiness, but it's not happy. Um, but you're supposed to pretend to be happy. Like you're you know you're totally right experientially, um, and I think that's an experience that many people who lose a loved one on or immediately approaching a chag feel. There's like that loss and that like yeah you know I mean for people who lose a loved one right before a chag, it's a different kind of Loss of like you just don't get to Um so I guess with you like at least you got to to do the morning practices. It was just delayed, but um you know I think the idea behind it is that they don't you know on the rabbi's end. In some ways, it's actually more about the community than the mourner in that case. That if during this celebratory time people are going to visit the sheva house, it diminishes their joy, and so sort of like we're just gonna like. Sorry, mourner. We're going to put you on hold until we're, we community are no longer in celebratory. But, but is the that mourner, the right, right thing to really do? To, but is that the right thing to do to a person you supposedly care about? So that's a good question, right? Is that the right thing to do? So that's kind of what we do, but it's certainly difficult on the mourner. I, I think it's also difficult on the community <clears throat> members who want to mourn with that person, even if like. This is halakhically happy time. Like, you know, if you're feeling that loss, you're feeling that loss. So it's a tough one.
2: There are also ways in which we get around this type of halacha, even in extreme halakhic uh, movements, Um, in terms of like there are certain times during the year that you're also not supposed to eulogize, right? And I've never been to a funeral where... The rabbi says, oh, and sorry, you know, it's such and such a time on the Jewish calendar. We're not going to say a eulogy. You get around it by saying you get around it by saying by saying
1: that exact thing. <laughs> it's, we don't say eulogies on this time. So I'm not going to eulogize. it. instead, I'm going to say
2: what like a teaching moment to be able to explain why you wouldn't. But but the reasons that we are going to, you know, and then you continue ahead with a eulogy Um and I would, I it's a little bit of a stretch, but I would go as far as to say that right now in my community, we are saying Kaddish for exactly the same reasons, even if we're not saying anything else during a Minyan that requires a Minyan, right? So we're not doing the Amidah loud, We're not saying Baruch Hu, We're not doing any of the category of things called Dvarim Shabik Dusha that would need a Minyan. And one of the reasons we will do Kaddish is because We believe for the same reasons that you would say a eulogy on a day where you're not supposed to, or you would come up with ways that you could comfort a mourner even if the person dies right before Yom Kippur and it and it stops short because there's a holiday coming up. That you find ways to bring comfort to the commute to the person through the community. And right now in COVID, that's allowing a person who started saying Kaddish before this time or who loses a person during this time to say the words that they would expect to say if they had lost somebody. Um, and I know that's not happening everywhere, but that's happening in our shul. And it's for the, for very similar reasons. Rachel or Norm?
4: R- Rachel is posting something. And oh. I wanted to say that... Um, I wanted to ask about that line they kept on doing at uh, hmm. at the Shiva. Um, everybody were, I'm very much accustomed to saying, but there was another sentence after that. And Sifu, almost everybody had it.
1: Veloto Sifu, Sifu
5: You should know an end to sorrow in English. Yeah, I exactly. Mean. Yeah.
1: It's- veloto, it's veloto sifu something. I forget the third. And that was even what they were asking. Like, Maru was asking, like, what's that last part of it? What's that last, those last couple of words? Cause you're right. A lot of people don't say it. Uh, probably most people don't say it. Um, but there it is. like It
4: seemed like almost everybody was saying it. I thought maybe it's an Israeli custom, but I don't know. It,
3: it is said in Yiddish, by the way. When people in, that are, that where Yiddish is their uh, natural language the, and then they go to a Shiva like that, they do say that.
4: What do they that, say in Yiddish?
3: What do they say? Oh,
4: okay. You shouldn't know from service. Hmm.
5: See, that is going to be easier to remember. Yeah, really. Hebrew. <laughs>
2: it's, it's also interesting that. Thank you. That the, um, I tried to look it up, by the way, Norm, and I can't find it quickly, but I'll try to find it in Hebrew quickly. Um, I'll be it, able to
4: use the English, that's fine.
2: Oh, great. Okay. Um, I won't, so I'll look it up for me. (laughs) Um, but, uh, the, the way that every person also says hamakom, right? In, for some people, that's a, that's a custom that they still do. And for others, you would say it as a community facing towards the mourner, uh, and not say it individually, like as you're leaving the home. And it's interesting because, Hamakom Yenachem is plural, right? So when you're talking to one person and looking at them in the face and saying these words, it's an interesting line to say when it's to that one person. I'm not going to give a drosh on why it's plural. Many of you have actually heard me do that, so I'm not going to do it again. But it is an interesting practice to see that the person individually recite it. Um, as opposed to it being something that is said kind of communally for for the person, even if it's not a whole group,
1: yeah
3: or And among the um, Israeli cohorts that I'm involved with, they just say shalom Right. Mm-hmm. And
1: they, for,
3: they don't even get, they don't even deal with the hamakom
1: Well, if you noticed, Amir didn't say hamakom He said. Mina Shamayim, whatever, the, the Sephardi mm-hmm. version, Mina Shamayim Tinichamu, or something like that. I think, I forget, it's, I forget how it's grammatically constructed, but may you be, may Tinichamu, like, may you be blessed from, may you be comforted from on high, um, which is much shorter, and it's kind of, it also doesn't say God, right? Mina Shamayim may you be comforted from on high, is like, it's a much less awkward phrase. Um, so, yeah, that's, um. Oh, done. Yeah. Wait, Renee, were you saying something? It sounded like you started. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah. So you're right. It's a, And then people are always like trying to make sure like they're practicing beforehand, especially people who aren't haven't been to shivas and there's like a sign there and they're practicing hamakom. You know, like it's, it's like an awkward thing. And like yeah, I actually often won't say it because like when I'm leaving a shiva because it's just it's so awkward. So you know, it's I, I don't know. I think it's better to say something. Hamu. I was close. Hamu. Thank you, Dad. That's my, <laughs> that's You're a tiny... for yeah, that's your no.
2: pocket grammarian. Um, but Nati did not want to hear him come one more time. Maybe Amir oh. knew. Yeah. But also, that's
1: Amir. Amir's custom. He's already. That's his custom anyway, right?
2: So just... But also, like, there was something very interesting about Amir's interaction with um, Nati that no one else really picked up on, which was being there. And interesting that he's he's the groom right so uh, th- had he not been there it's possible Nati wouldn't have actually have felt as comforted by anybody who would have visited him he was able to really open up with Amir in a different way than than anybody else who came to visit um yeah any other did anybody else pick up on anything in the episode that you want to reference before yes, we
5: uh, Amir and Nati have been like housemates and best yeah. friends yeah. For a long time. The series presents it as if ever since Amir's divorce, be that one year, two years, whatever, that they have shared a house together. And so it's kind of like of course Amir would be yeah. nice friends. For
2: sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh
0: Denise. Um Okay, so two things, both Nati related. Right. Um, one was, I thought it was an interesting writer's choice. He works at Hadassah Hospital. Right, and hospital. His mother is Hadassah. And, you know, she could be named anything. Yeah. Um, so that seemed intentional. Mm-hmm. And then, because there's a sign of Shiva for Burner. And then also, I felt like Nati really grew a lot in the episode and um, and that he's been growing for a while. Like when he was talking with the brother and and Nati's been there every day except for the last day. And then the brother says to him, you know what she said right before Shema, she said, where's Nati? And like Nati takes it as a sting and I took it first as a sting. But then later when he said, I'm jealous of you, it almost felt like Nazi is the one that the mother counted on and that, you know what I mean? And that like that the brother and maybe the other siblings too felt like in her eyes, he was the top one and they weren't, they were like all kind of second best and that that was a new awareness for Nazi. So like, I think he feels really guilty to tell people why he wasn't there you know, I don't know. I, I feel like Nazis are people too. Like he, I think he gets a tough rap, but I think he has a lot of goodness in him.
1: Yeah, I think even the telling telling the story is sort of like he sees the way that people are responding to his brother. I mean, and, you know, you see Nazi in a number of ways. You see him racing ahead with Kaddish, right? There's sort of like the ways that he's kind of like, everyone uh-huh. is volunteering for a Shabbos to take care of their dad and he doesn't. It's like, there's sort of these ways but you, it, it clearly is coming from a guilt place, right? I think it seems to be very clear that he's like he's feeling guilt, very guilty um, about the fact that he wasn't there, primarily. And you know, he's and also was,
0: the one who's been there every day, right. right? He says he's he was there every single day, and no, the he other also ones there every day. So like, yeah, they could do a job. that's here and there. And you know, right? And maybe he just recognizes that he's spent, and like he said, he's not even there half the time.
1: Right, right. So, um yeah. yeah no, I mean, he's I he's very it's generous to Nadi. Yeah, I, I, yeah. No, go
2: go ahead.
1: Ahead. No, no. No, I was just gonna say. I mean, I think you know, nazi's in a t- like he's feeling very, he's feeling guilty for all of this. I, you know, I think he's lashing out because of his, this feeling of guilt and yeah I mean he does roll his eyes when Rory tells the story but it's because of the fact that he wasn't there right it's not like that and he's getting so annoyed by the fact that his brother is telling it but it's because his brother has this beautiful story that he can't tell because he wasn't there and so eventually he says you know what I'm just telling the story as if I was there Right? Like, yeah sort of, like,
0: but he also like, <laughs> like he feels guilty but you know a more calculating person would find a way to work it in and say, hey, I was there, and three weeks ago she did this, and five days later she did that. And he doesn't do any of that. He keeps it all in.
2: I I also think, and then I'll call on Rabbi Pernick, but I also think that what we're seeing in this episode is that different people deal with grief differently. And even within the same family, you – I have three other siblings and all of my brothers and I, each one of us deal with things very differently, including grief. And so I think what we're seeing in the, this kind of new character role of Nazis is that he is recognizing the ways in which he needs to grieve the ways in which he felt connected to his mother and hearing other people relate to her and to relate to those moments differently is hard for him and and i think that that is that's true in all family dynamics right it's not just nati as a character i think it's true in 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 anybody's dynamic of how you deal with a loved one dying and what you do next and how you stay connected if you can as a family uh rabbi pernick
7: so i guess two things um so when my excuse me when my dad died back in 1997 and it was very sudden um so that was my first real experience with shiva you know as a mourner and i came to realize that the point of shiva and why i I try to encourage my people to sit as full of shiva as possible because they have it in their heads that you're only supposed to do three days it's kind of like you know it's an alternate reform halakha. it's like no you can do seven. it's okay but i think the point of shiva which i think i saw with nati and, and the rolling his eyes is to get sick and tired of shiva
1: mm-hmm. and so
7: you can't stand it i've told this story 50 times we've done this over and over and over. let's let's get on with life already to me that's precisely the point so for him yeah i mean i think there's some sibling rivalry there and you know who knows whatever else but Everybody who comes to the mourner is hearing it fresh. Mm. And to me, that's what I always tell people. Just you, you're getting tired of it. Good. That's, the, you know, because a lot of people, this, they want to do, well, I can only do one day shiva. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're not psychologically getting to the point. The, the On a somewhat different note, I just wanted to add, you know, with the whole Hamakom Yenachem thing, which is always awkward and I love the way they dealt with it. But I think also part of the reason for that is that people are very uncomfortable around death yeah. and they don't know what to say. And I had heard this before my dad died. <clears throat> now I tell everybody because it happened at, at my dad, the Shiva for my dad. You know, some, oh, I'm really, you know, they, they don't know what to say. And somebody, and, and I, I'm sure other people here have had this experience. Somebody says something really, really stupid. I mean, just, like, really, where you just, like, want to look at the person and say, what do you say? Because they, they're stumbling. They just don't know what to say. And if you give people a formula, yeah. at least just they Just trust it was in
4: God's
1: plan. Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, right, exactly.
1: Right. Yeah, no, good point. Okay, I have to hop off because I have a religious committee meeting right now. Um, but I'm going to, Rabbi Shot is a host, so I'm just going to hop off and. Um, wait, 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 you,
2: wait, you have to make me the host then. Wait. Yeah. Okay. Wait, but is there a religious committee meeting in your Zoom? Because then no. we're gonna... oh. not ah, see it later. I'll take this with the other Rabbi Pernick. We got it. Okay. <laughs> okay, Barbara.
5: Just, just to extend on what Rabbi Pernick just mentioned, yeah. which I agree with him completely. And I, I had no idea about what it was going to be like to be a mourner until my father actually died. Um, having, having the um, Shiva lasts the seven days. And we come from what in San Francisco, being conservative was really like being reformed down in LA, practically. Um, but it's to extend it a little further, St. Kaddish for the year. I didn't realize until the year was up how much it had helped me to get over the loss of my father. My father was no question, my favorite parent, he was a doctor. I followed after him in his steps. Um, he and I were able to converse my entire life better than I did with my mom, but I became really close with my mom after my dad died. And I was friendly. I was. I won't say I wasn't close with my mom, but the comparison. But I, I found that, that the extension of saying Kaddish for that year, wow, it sure did help it it re, it extended the period of time that it takes for you to get over that that loss because the loss of a parent or if if you're older and I have not suffered this a, a loss of a kid is a horrible thing. Yeah, I, know, I, I I would I, just advise people to advise their friends if they ever come across this. It, it's a great way to get over the loss of someone you're close to.
2: Yeah. I've shared this a few times before, but I'll say it again. I, there are many things that I disagree with in terms of ritual practice and observance and all those things in our, in our tradition. Um, many things that I have no control over and some things that I do have control over that I just, I'm not sure what the rabbis were thinking. But when it comes to death and actually when it comes to marriage and just the ways in which those are two moments that You don't necessarily know what you're supposed to do or where am I supposed to stand or what am I supposed to say to make sure that my person knows that I love them when I hand them that ring, right? Our rabbis created something for us, whether it's a timeline like we have with death or it's ritual like we have with. Uh, with a wedding that, that really do create that formula for you, like you're talking about, Barbara, that allows a person to know not only what to do, sorry, not only what to say, but what to do and how to allow the other people around you to also know what to do and what to say. Um, my dad, uh, the first person that was very close to me who passed away was my dad's mom. And, uh, I was in 10th grade, so I kind of knew what was going on, but, had never lost a grandparent, still, the the rest of my grandparents are still alive, thank God. Um, And I remember my dad saying Kaddish for the entire year. And when we asked him why he felt like he should do that, he said that it gave him a moment every day to think of his mom. He didn't care what the words were. He didn't care that he was standing in a particular sanctuary. In fact, he found some of his least favorite communities to say Kaddish in. But it gave him a moment to think of his mom. And he used to always talk about how he would imagine his mom sitting next to God and that was how he was able to say Kaddish. Um, And so whatever it is for people to be able to have those moments of checking in or those moments of shiva where you have people come to your home to surround you in a time where you just don't expect anybody to care because you're at the lowest of the lows. That's when our rabbis stepped up and said, "Look, look what we can create for you, so that you still have that around you, and you have those moments." Uh, and I think that's amazing. I think that our our tradition, our religion, did a really great job there. Um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna close. The the last thing that I will just share about this episode that I think will be brought up um, again, which is why Rye Pernick and I didn't choose to to bring it up as a whole topic today, is this idea of Hodaya still kind of having one foot in one door and one foot in the other door and not knowing how to disconnect from her family and yet be able to move on with a different kind of life. And, And we all know people who have moved in those two different directions, either become more from, right, become more, quote, religious or less. And how that can take you away in certain ways from your family unless you figure out ways to still stay connected. And Hodaya is in that limbo, right, to bring that word back even to this experience of not really knowing how to have those connections and still be her own person. So we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as the episodes move on. So I was just reading the piece from Rachel. Uh, and have a great... Have a great night and a uh, great week. You
0: have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Betham, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Betham, Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.